If you've ever felt tempted to feel like your struggles in asking those questions or struggling with your faith, you might think that you are disqualified because of going through that process. If you've said yes to any of those questions or yes to any of those thoughts, this message is for you, and this message is for me. What we're going to look at in Jeremiah 32 is a real-life story of a prophet of God who obeys in faith and yet struggles. In the end here, I hope that you will be encouraged in your faith in Christ as we tackle this topic Printed on the top of your outline, what does faith look like? You can see there's two main points there. Divine appointment for faith and the, uh, forget the title of the second one, but we're going to cover four aspects to faith. Now, before we get into Jeremiah 32, I have to give you a little bit of background because there's a lot going on here and the background and context really uh, gives a lot of meaning to this, to this chapter. So Jeremiah... You can think in terms of timeline, he's about 620 B.C., so 600 years before Jesus. God comes to him when he's young and says, you're going to be a prophet. Jeremiah 1.6, his response is, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I am only a youth. So right from the very beginning, he's hesitant. But God assures him that people are going, his words are going to be powerful, and he needs to say it anyway, uh, and the people will need to hear it. Now, the message that he needs to preach for the next 40 years of his preaching ministry is a message that people don't want to hear. It's very bad news. So basically, the city that they're in, Jerusalem, is going to be attacked. Lots of people are going to die. They're going to run out of food. It's going to get so bad that people are going to be given to cannibalism. This is actually a prediction that God said in Deuteronomy 28. So even way, 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 way back, it's coming true. So this is his preaching ministry, that this is going to happen because of people's sin. Now, Jeremiah is not written in chronological order. Uh, So I'm going to read one verse from chapter 37 that gives us some of the context for 32. Listen to this. Um, So King Zedekiah gave orders, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard. And the loaf of bread was given to him daily from the the baker's street until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Uh, What had happened there is that he was falsely arrested and imprisoned, and the king uh, told him he had to stay in this one location. So he's arrested for something he didn't do, and there's this ominous warning in that verse that until the bread runs out. So they know it's not looking very good. And this is the context of chapter 32. There's an army besieging Jerusalem, and it doesn't look good. So with that, let's start at verse 1 of chapter 32 of Jeremiah. I'm going to read up to verse 15. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. 
and he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth and the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be bought in, shall again be bought in this land. All right. Whew. There's still a lot more to go. So this is the divine appointment for point one. There's an army besieging Jerusalem, verse two. Verse three, God says he's the one behind it. He's doing it on purpose. And this is the bad news that Jeremiah is preaching to those who listen and to the king. The king is obviously very upset about this. Then God says, your cousin's going to come to you and say to you, hey, buy my field from our hometown. This is where he's from, Anathoth, which is about two or three miles outside of Jerusalem. So it's not very far away. This divine appointment happens. And then uh, Jeremiah, verse 8, says, after it happens, he's like, then I knew this was the word of the Lord. This wasn't just some uh, deja vu moment or it just happenstance. He knew that God had set this up. There's the transaction in 9 through 12, and there's witnesses who see this all go down. And then he says to his, uh, his assistant, Baruch, you know, take these deeds and, and put them in an earthenware vessel so it'll last a really long time. And the reason why is in verse 15, because God says that houses, fields, vineyards are going to be bought again in this land. Okay, why is this land purchase so significant? What's going on here? You got to remember the context. What is his cousin asking him to buy? When he comes up to him and says, hey, buy my land, what is he asking him to buy? It's not just a field. What is going on? There is an army right outside their doorstep. What do armies do to fields of nations they want to conquer? They help themselves to whatever food's there. They destroy it. They encamp on it. It's not the kind of thing that has a lot of value. And even if it did, even if they didn't touch it, what has he been preaching for 40 years? Destruction, destruction, destruction. That is his message to these people. And God wants them to repent and turn back to him. And so uh, this, is a, this is a worthless property by any sense of the imagination here. And 
on top of that, he has to use his own money to buy this land, which means he has less money to buy food in the city. So if we were to uh, stop right here in verse 15 and not go any further, uh, you'd probably be like, wow, man, what a man of faith, and, and, and be applauding his uh, excellent example of faith, which it is, but we're going to see in a moment here, there is a bit of struggle too. Let's spend the rest of our time looking at how Jeremiah responds to this event and how God responds to Jeremiah. So if you would, we're going to read another big chunk, 16 to the end. Verse 16. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You, st- you show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are all whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as to this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounts have come up to the city to take it. And because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you have spoken has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet, you, O Lord, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. And here's God's response, the rest of the chapter. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving the city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal, who is a foreign god, and to drink offerings that have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but to provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they've turned their back and not, they turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abomination in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built high places of Baal in the valley of son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. 
though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they, did, that they should do such an abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hands of the king of Babylon by sword, famine, and pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them with, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing the, and I, that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put fear the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant in them this land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money. Deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, and in the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negeb. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. God had a big answer to uh, Jeremiah there. So what's going on here? After this transition, uh, this transaction, this purchase, Jeremiah prays and God responds. Now this chapter 32 is very important to the, the book of and theme of Jeremiah because it highlights the two main themes that God wants his people to understand, especially for them at this time. One is that God's bringing destruction because of their sin, because of their rebellion. And you see that in uh, most pointedly in verses 30 to 35. I mean, there's that litany, I don't know if you caught it, that litany, that repetition of, they turned against me. They've done nothing but evil, nothing but uh, to provoke me. They've turned their backs to me, verse 33. They set up abomination, 34. 35, they built high places, and they're even sacrificing, they're even doing human sacrifices, their sons and daughters, to this foreign god. That's how bad it got. So that's one of the themes that God is bringing discipline and judgment because they've turned away from him. And the second theme is the theme of hope. That God, this is not the end. He has hope for his people. And you see that in the remaining verses, 36 to 44. If you uh, know anything about Jeremiah, the chapter right before this is a pretty, uh, pretty famous one. Jeremiah 31, where it talks about the new covenant and how God is, is planning a new way. And just one verse, you can just think of it. It's not probably not going to be up on the screen, but Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. He is going to give this to his people, this promise, this hope. And so we, we see the judgment and we see the hope in this chapter of Jeremiah 32. So with that in mind, let's cover our four aspects of what faith looks like, our main topic for this morning. So the first one on your outline is you can see that faith looks like a struggle even when you know the truth. 
Going back to verse 6. God comes to Jeremiah and says, this whole thing's going to happen. It's going to go down this way. He says, verse 8, Then I knew it was the word of the Lord because it came true. He prays in response to this, this seemingly odd event. And uh, God is, again, uh, telling him why and that he is going to bring hope in his response. Now, when Jeremiah prays, if you look at it, or if you noticed, verse 16 all the way to 24, he's recounting like why God is doing this, God's character, his goodness, all these things that, that maybe you would expect from a prophet. And then you have verse 25, right at the end. There's that contrast, that yet. I tried to emphasize it when I read it. God, you asked me to do this thing. I'm going to paraphrase here. You asked me to do this thing, this crazy thing, that doesn't make any sense. Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though it's going to be given to, your, to these enemies. What are you doing? You set, certainly get a sense that Jeremiah's faith has a bit of uncertainty to it at this point. You know, for years he's been preaching destruction, preaching God's word. And now there's a little bit of doubt. What are you up to, God? He receives a direct revelation from God to do this thing. But yet, there is this big why question that's hanging out there. Why are you making me do this? Doesn't make sense. Why, God? Why did you make me spend my own money on worthless land? God even says to him in verse 43, I don't know if you caught it, he speaks back to Jeremiah and says, you're saying it is a desolation without man or beast. That's his perspective on this purchase, is that it's no good. And so Jeremiah, you see a little bit of his struggle of his faith in action. And so even when he is so familiar with the truth, even though he received a direct revelation from God himself, there's some struggle. Jeremiah, the prophet, is struggling to understand what God is up to. And this, this knowledge of this truth, this revelation from God, does not erase the struggle that he has. How does this apply to us? Uh, for me, a, a lot of times lately, I have been asking a lot of why questions. Why, God, is faith so hard? Why is it so hard? Why do people that I know and care for seem to be falling away from their faith? Why is this happening? Why do you allow these difficult circumstances to come up in people's lives? Why? Why, God? Why are you allowing this and why are you doing this or what, what's going on here? And if you're like me, some of these questions and some of these circumstances could bring you to the breaking point. And it might be tempting to think if, if that's you and if you're in that situation, you might be tempted to think there's something wrong with you. As if faith has to be perfect, rock solid all the time. I don't have faith like those other people. I don't have faith like that guy up front. Maybe you're tempted to give up. Throw in the towel. Jeremiah is an encouragement to me. Take heart that having faith is having a struggle. It does not disqualify your faith. 
Consider two brief examples. Jesus on the cross. Do you remember one of the accounts of what he said on the cross? He quoted Psalm 22, verse 1. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of a why question, the greatest good that has ever happened in the history of mankind came about. Or Paul telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12 to fight the good fight of faith. Notice he calls it a fight. And it's good. It's a good fight. Faith is a struggle. So hang on. Don't give up. Remember, faith is a struggle even when you know the truth. Second point. Remember God's promises. I love the way that God responds to Jeremiah here uh, in his, his hesitation or maybe his doubt as to what God is doing. Verse 26, he doesn't magically change his heart or blast him because he had some doubt or some questions. Instead, his first response is to remind him who's in control. Verse 27, is there anything too hard for me? Rhetorical question. And then he walks him through all of these promises particularly at 36, to the end of what he's going to do. And so he's, he's telling Jeremiah that, that part of the answer, part of what faith looks like for you is to remember these things. Say them to your heart. Say them to other people. Look just with me here. 39, he says, I will give them one heart and one way. Verse 40, he will establish an everlasting covenant with them. Verse 42, I'll bring prosperity to them that he promises. Verse 43, Fields shall be bought in this land again. And, and to, to make it even more personal to Jeremiah, look at verse 44. I almost missed this a couple of times studying this. He, he says, in the land of Benjamin. You see that phrase? That is where he's from. So it's like, even your hometown, Jeremiah, these are the promises that are going to come true. And those are the ones you need to hold on to. He's helping them to see God's point of view. So, what's going on here? Notice that God doesn't say, just trust me, I know what I'm doing, in verse 27. And then it moves on to chapter 33. There's a long response to help Jeremiah out. And he wants Jeremiah, again, to hang on to his promises of what he is going to do and understand why he is doing it. Now, what does this look like for us today? Well, really, faith looks the same. It looks the same for us today, uh, that we need to hold on to God's promises and we look to his word for how he has operated in the past and hold on to his, uh, his promises for now and in the future. Just a couple that, that I hold on to more tightly, perhaps, than others. John six thirty seven. Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Jesus, in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Another great promise. Or the chapter right before this. I read it before. Jeremiah 31, 34. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And on and on and on. All these promises of God that we can hold on to. What are the promises of God that you 
need to be reminded of right now. What are they? God knows what you need right now in the moment that you are, even this morning. He knows the truth you need to hear. Maybe it is Jeremiah 32, and maybe you know nothing of the Bible. Maybe you know, need to hear these words that God will forgive iniquity and remember sin no more. Memorize them, study them. Remember God's promises. That's what faith looks like. Thirdly, faith looks like stepping into fear and discomfort. All right, so this whole thing is a bit awkward for Jeremiah. Remember, he, the, he's asked to do this thing by his cousin. Now, if it were me, I would have told my cousin, get lost, right? Like, why are you asking me to do this? Uh, if it weren't for God telling him, I don't know what he would have done. I mean, it just, it just seems silly. Buy this field, this worthless field, in a city that's being besieged by an enemy, when there's a sliver of hope that maybe somehow we could survive and I could keep some money, but now I got to spend it on a worthless field. It was an awkward situation. And on top of that, he has to get witnesses. He has to get people to come and watch him do this crazy thing. Verse 12 and verse 25. And I was imagining... You know, this is conjecture, but imagining Jeremiah, who's supposed to be teaching God's promises to all the people and to the king, imagine him thinking, perhaps being tempted, if I do this, will this compromise my message to the leaders when they see me doing this crazy thing? They might think I'm crazy. They might dismiss all of what I'm teaching. I don't know. I was just wondering. Is nothing too difficult for me, God says in 27. So what you see is Jeremiah stepping into this discomfort and this fear, you know, loss of finances, loss of reputation potentially. And he goes ahead and he does it. He does what God asks him to do. You even see him stepping into a bit of fear and discomfort, I would say, in his prayer. It doesn't say if it was, it was public or not. It just says that he prayed in verse 16. But he's, he's starting in faith by, by recounting that God is good and even bringing up to God his concerns at the end of verse 25. Perhaps that is a bit of discomfort and fear for him. Now, what does all this mean? Now, God knows that this was going to happen, right? So nothing surprised him here. He was the one that set this up in the first place. And again, his response is to his own character to Jeremiah. Is nothing too difficult or too hard for me? God doesn't remove the discomfort. He doesn't remove the awkwardness. He allows it. And what he does is, is, is interesting. He, he directs Jeremiah to the most important thing that matters. And what is that? Is that he himself is in control. Jeremiah is not in control of the outcome of the situation, but God is. And this truth is what must enable Jeremiah, what must enable you and me to persevere through fear and discomfort in faith. 
that God is in control. Nothing is too hard for him. If you were here last week, Ryan did a fabulous job teaching us from the word about how we are witnesses of Jesus if we are in Christ. And we get to be witnesses of Jesus to neighbors, to family, to co-workers, to every person we come in contact with. Now here's a question. Does sharing, if you're a Christian, why, does sharing why you believe what you believe to people around you or sharing your faith or why you believe in Jesus, does that cause a bit of fear and perhaps discomfort for you? Some awkwardness? I think yes. Can you identify where living out your faith feels like walking into fear or discomfort? Maybe it's putting yourself out there in humility and asking for forgiveness to someone. Maybe it's going out of your way to encourage someone that you know needs to hear a word of truth or an encouragement. Maybe it's sharing your faith with a coworker. For me, this applies to a, a, a long-standing pattern of failure in my life of waiting for a better opportunity. I see that fear and discomfort. It's right there, but it's not the right time yet because I'll wait for a better opportunity. And you know what that means? That means I wait till the next day and to the next day until never. And I'm not talking about not acting in wisdom. I'm talking about acting in faith. And that's when I need to believe God's words in verse 27. Is there anything too hard for me? And step into that fear. Step into that discomfort and obey what God has. What is it for you? What is God calling you into? What fears, what discomfort does faith look like as you step into those things and honor him? And remember the promises that nothing is too hard for him. So the third aspect to what faith looks like is stepping into fear and discomfort. Finally, the fourth aspect of faith is the moment of truth. In this passage, verse 9, you see it. Verse 9, very simple. I bought the field, period. That is what it is, buying the field. He did it. Jeremiah did it. He bought the field with money. Pulled out his wallet. I don't know if you paid by credit card or, or cash but, uh, or check. No, he paid with shekels, right? So he did it, though. He bought the field. He actually got it done. He didn't just simply believe God's promises. He didn't just simply recognize that it was a struggle or simply just pass, you know, push through discomfort. He actually does all those things together, pulls out his wallet, and buys the field. And in return, what does he get? He gets the deeds, the sealed and unsealed copy. That's what he has at the end of this. There's a little bit of money, and he has the deed. Jeremiah is the witness himself to God's plan of redemption. And this happens through Jeremiah's personal finances, his personal reputation, and all of the whys and what-ifs that surround this story. God's using him. He's a living, breathing example that God cares about bringing restoration and reminding people around Jeremiah to have hope. Verse 44. Fields shall be bought 
for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed. God says, for I will restore their fortunes. That is the hope. That's the deal that God offers. Now for Jeremiah, there is absolutely no indication in this, in this book that he's going to see this field and like get benefit out of it. So what's going on for him? What is his hope in this? His hope is that in this purchase, in this deal, it propels him forward, that he thinks ahead to what is to come, to a time when that deed that he is holding on to, that is currently now not worth nothing, will be worth an infinite worth one day. That is his hope. That is the deal that he gets. Buying a little bit now for an infinite worth later. This points ahead to Jesus who spoke of a similar deal or the deal. If this is a lowercase deal, this is the big case deal. Jesus said this in Matthew 13, 44. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Faith is not faith unless you buy the field. You put down the money, you pull out the wallet, you make it happen, and you get the deed. Jesus reminds his audience that buying this field might cost you everything and that you must be willing to go that far to get this deed. What does this mean for us today? What Jesus is referring to there in Matthew 13, 44, is that following him with your whole life is the buying the field. In exchange for giving your life and submitting to him, you get his life. You get forgiveness of sin and a life with God. I like deals, and that is a great deal. This is the deal that blows away all other deals. It's called the gospel, the good news. If I give up my life, I can have eternal life. All it costs to gain infinitely better things is to give up temporal things. This is the best deal. This is what Christianity is all about. And for those on the outside who do not understand, you know what it looks like? Believing the gospel looks like this crazy land purchase that's worthless. Like, why are you doing that? They do not understand this deal. But for those who do, it is life, joy, hope, meaning, purpose, and so on. Let me ask you, have you made this purchase? Have you found the treasure in the field? Would you give it all for Jesus to have what he offers? Consider this. You might not want to follow Jesus and not take his offer, but what's a better offer? I'd love to hear it. Give it to me. You might continue in this world, gathering things, making friends, but in the end, it all gets taken away from you. You need that deed of purchase that will last beyond the grave. It is a waste not to follow Jesus. And just like in this story, people who did not listen to Jeremiah and turned back to the Lord, they might have been able to gather a bunch of money, 
But they knew, they saw it. What was going to happen? They're, they're, there's no chance that their city is going to survive. It's going to be besieged. No matter how much money they have, they cannot buy food that doesn't exist. So follow Jesus and have true life. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, following him is not a waste. On the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This land purchase, this buying the field, making the choice to follow Jesus is the best decision you will ever make or the be- and the best decision you will ever hold on to and never regret. Yet, verse 25, yet, it is still a struggle day by day. It is a fight, a good one. You know, Jesus' own disciples were struggling with some of these things. If you've ever just struggled in your faith, you can maybe relate to Jeremiah and maybe even relate to Jesus' own disciples. We're going to end with this. At one point, the disciples were worried that they made a mistake by following Jesus. And they asked him, Matthew 19, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus' answer to them, Matthew 19, 29, he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. He's talking about the good now and the good in the future. In other words, he's telling his disciples, you did not make a mistake by following me. You will be richly rewarded for your faith. And in the language of Jeremiah 32, they gave up their lives to buy that deed of purchase that will one day give them an eternal reward, an eternal value, or infinite value when that day comes. This is what faith looks like. Can you bow your heads and pray with me? And the worship team will come back up. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Jeremiah's example. Thank you that he uh, followed through in obedience, uh, yet showed us what it looks like in a life of uh, faith, how it's not all clean and rosy, how faith is a fight, it's a struggle. But in the midst of that struggle, you are doing an amazing work. You are producing Uh, greater character, greater understanding, conforming us more to to your image. And God, I pray that, that we would all see Jesus clearly and see the offer that he makes that we may place our faith in you and gain that reward that will never spoil or fade. We pray this in your name. Amen.